0: Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Thank you, Tim, and no, you cannot have my rights. <laughs> I don't want your tie or your suit. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it's terrific to be here. Uh, in fact, when uh, when we signed up for Navy Week many, many months ago, we had no idea of uh, the sort of challenges that were present themselves in the last uh, four weeks. So I thought what, what would be helpful to do is to, um, is to share with you um, a story that begins with how you see the world. And what I give the Navy great credit for, for all of us who serve, it is a world view. It is a, it is a broad perspective that has to be integrated in order to understand the terrain, the world in which we operate. If we don't try and learn, more about the world in which we're operating. We don't understand the factors that influence developments that take place in the security environment. Then then we're constantly behind. And we're looking at symptoms of larger problems rather than trying to anticipate how we can be more effective and more relevant in a world that demands more security and stability. So we start with this chart up here because uh, the description of how we see ourselves and the role we play has, I think, some, some uh, altruistic sort of words that go with it. I mean, that's the way we see our role. But I want to pick that with some recent reports that you've read here in the last two years, and I think Tim was starting to hint at it, that really describes the challenges of the world in which we're operating. And then as we close out, what I hope you'll draw from it is that in order to be effective, in a disaster relief operation like Operation Tomodachi in Japan. We have to be forward present. And in order to be forward present, we have to be able to sustain ourselves. And there's real costs associated with it. And so the question for the audience will be, is it worth the cost? I think it is. Uh, I've certainly felt that way for the past 38 years, and I don't from that. But there's always pressure, rightfully so, on whether or not we are Efficient, whether we're economical, and whether or not we're evaluating risks in such a way uh, that we recognize national mission, but also some uh, real-world budgetary constraints. Here's, a, here's a, some very familiar, I think, uh, themes that you've heard and read recently in the press. The sluggish U.S. economy, lingering debt, and stretched military resources have generated concerns about America's long-term capacity to lead Asia pacific which in turn fuels anxiety about the capacity of the United States to maintain its role as a protector. Those are not our words. We don't see ourselves as the protector. That's what people in the region see us as. The velocity of China's economic rise, growth, and trade have fed a narrative of declining US influence in the region, almost a zero-sum sort of calculation of that if one power rises, the other must fall. Public reaction to the occurrence of retaliatory moves and threatening rhetoric has led to concerns about the implications of China's rise. You know, one of the things growing up in the Navy and then making frequent trips uh, to Dallas after I had graduated from the Naval Academy and then made a series of deployments was trying to describe the impact of what we do. You see, with the Navy, unlike some of the other armed forces it, it's almost a leap of faith. I mean, you have to trust us that you that you understand that what we're doing really has impact and really has consequences. And likewise, if we don't do it, uh, then if we're not forward, if we're not active in the region, then there's real consequences associated with that. So what I'd like to do is try to describe in the next slide the the realities of of the world that we're in, and, and these are realities that, surprisingly enough, for many of us. <coughs> history continues to play a very important <clears> role <throat> as it plays out uh, in modern-day terms. We're shaped by current trends. We're also recognizing that in order to operate in the world that we're in today, in order to, to play a constructive role, that our approach to leading and influencing in the region has uh, a lot to do with being forward and being present. There's, there's real opportunities, but there's also real challenges associated. And so trying to strike the right balance by having a force that really represents the national interest on the world stage, but at the same time takes into account uh, the uh, the real challenges that we have with resourcing that over time. It is a a global view that's required. Next slide, please. So I start here. Uh, A very familiar chart to those who have have seen this before. This is a, a page taken from the Unified Command Plan. It describes uh, the combatant commander's areas of responsibility by geography. So you see it's color-coded. This is submitted by the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs every two years to the Secretary of Defense. And in our own words, it describes responsibilities that are typically defined by latitude and longitude inside that color-coded area. So with the addition of AFRICOM, you see six geographic what that chart doesn't show you though, and it is uh, deceptive, I think, is what's behind the color Imagine what that chart looked like in 1946. There were 51 countries that comprised the community of nations. Today it's 192. 195 if you count Vatican City, Kosovo, and Taiwan. Think about what's implied in a statement like that in terms of the explosion of the nation state concept since 1946. What's remarkable about that is the representation of ethnicity, the representation of cultural identity. So when we look at the sources of conflict in the Asia-Pacific region over time, unlike the Middle East, which typically takes us through uh, competition in terms of ideology and religion, here it's a sense of national integrity, wholeness, boundaries, sovereignty. These issues are critically important in the region, largely because of the impact that colonization uh, and colonialism had throughout much of its history. Imagine Indonesia, which received its independence in 1945. If you look at the words in the Indonesian National Anthem, if you attend an event in Indonesia where the National Anthem is played, there's no band. There's no one person who stands up and sings in front of them. Everyone is on their feet and singing at the top of their toes uh, because they are so proud that after 350 (coughs) years of Dutch rule, they became independent in August of 1945. So when we start talking about issues related to economic exclusion zones that play out today, when we talk about how we interact with countries in the region that interact today, uh, it's largely impacted by this this historic view of what either World War II or what colonialism had done to their national identity. It's in the DNA. So when we interact with countries, whether it's Malaysia, which received its independence in 1963, Singapore 1965, India 1947, there is a long-standing view of, of what colonialism have done to the national identity and psyche. And it's best represented in looking at the, um, the national anthems of individual countries and in All of them talk to uh, their, their proud moment of independence. The chart also skews in a way, intentionally, uh, the ratio between land and water. So you're looking at a chart now that describes about 70% land. 30% water, and the inverse ratio is actually true, it's 70% water, 30% land. But what this, this chart actually does is it also highlights <coughs> geography. 19th century geostrategist Mackinder described, when looking at land strategy, the strategic pivot point which was in Eurasia that eventually became known as the Great Game uh, between Russia and Great Britain, vying for influence, zones of influence in Eurasia. It's in the modern-day area of Afghanistan, where if a country could control that area, then it could effectively pivot in terms of its influence because of the pervasive impact that geography had in terms of trade routes as well as for the population of the world. If we took that idea, the idea of a strategic pivot, and we took it to sea, then I would suggest you would find the strategic pivot in maritime terms in the Southeast Asian region, ASEAN the South China Sea. Uh, in this area, this is where we find uh, the greatest influence of geography, the greatest influence of history, as well as in the economy. And as we look over time, uh, what we see now is the impact that um, the post-World War II era has had on all of us, and it dramatically impacts this area. Go ahead. So, here we go, first
1: an access for health, life expectancy, from 25 years to 75 years. And down here, an access for wealth, income per person, $400,000, and $40,000. So, down here is poor and sick, and up here is rich and healthy. Now, I'm going to show you the world 200 years ago, in 1810. Here come all the countries. Europe brown, Asia red, Middle East green, Africa south of Sahara view, and the Americas yellow. And the size of the country bubbles show the size of the population. And in 1810, it was pretty crowded down there, wasn't it? All countries were second and poor, life expectancy were below 40 in all countries. <coughs> and only the UK and the Netherlands were slightly better off, but not much. And now, why start the world? The industrial revolution makes countries in Europe and elsewhere move away from the rest. But the colonized countries in Asia and Africa, they are stacked down there. And eventually, the western countries get healthier and healthier. And now, we slow down to show the impact on the First World War and the Spanish flu epidemic. What a catastrophe! And now I speed up through the 1920s and the 1930s. And in spite of the Great Depression, Western countries forged towards greater wealth and help. Japan and some others tried to follow, but most countries stayed down here. Now, after the tragedies of the Second World War, we stop a bit to look at the world in 1948. 1948 was a great year. The war was over. Sweden topped the medal table at the Winter Olympics, and I was born. But the difference <laughs> between the countries of the world was wider than ever. United States was in the front, Japan was catching up, Brazil was way behind, Iran was getting a little richer from oil, but still had short lives. And the Asian giants, China, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh and Indonesia, they were still poor and sick down here. But look what is about to happen. Here we go again. In my lifetime, Former colonies gained independence and then finally they started to get healthier and healthier and healthier. And in the 1970s, then countries in Asia and Latin America started to catch up with the Western countries. They became the emerging economies. Some in Africa follows. Some Africans were stuck in civil war and others hit by HIV. And now we can see the world today in the most up-to-date statistics. Most people today live in the middle. But there are huge differences at the same time between the best of countries and the worst of countries. And there are also huge inequalities within countries. These bubbles show country averages. But I can split them. Take China. I can split it into provinces. There goes Shanghai. It has the same wealth and health as Italy today. And there is the poor inland province who I show. It is like Pakistan. And if I split it further, the rural parts, all I call Africa. And yet, despite the enormous disparities today, we have seen 200 years of remarkable progress. That huge historical gap between the West and the rest is now closing. We have become an entirely new, converging world. And I see a clear trend into the future with aid, trade, green technology, and peace. It's fully possible that everyone can make it to the healthy, wealthy corner. Well, what you just seen in the last few minutes is a story of two hundred countries, shown over two hundred years and year. beyond. It involved plotting of one
0: hundred and twenty thousand numbers.
1: Pretty neat,
0: huh? <laughs> Okay, so keep in mind the vector that he summarized with. And just think what that means now. As we all move to the upper right-hand corner of the graph over time, in an informational uh, information world that we live globalized world, mm-hmm. What does this mean in maritime terms? In maritime terms, you're looking at now what the impact is meant to, to port cities in Asia Pacific if we can advance this slide. And we're looking at now real data that suggests this is how we get to $5 trillion of economic activity in Asia Pacific today. And what you're looking at on the chart now is the sea lines of communication. These are effectively highways in the sea. As we look at radar emissions over time, it describes now the prevailing routes that shipping traffic is using. So this now tells us where some of the critical nodes are in a world in which everyone is driving to get to the upper right hand corner of that graph. That's the demand for resources. And that's the issue that we're seeing today playing out in real terms in in, uh, Southeast Asia in particular. Next slide please. So as as we look at some of the specific symptoms as we see, Uh, whether it's maritime access to historic boundaries, uh, whether it's problems on the peninsula, or whether it's the introduction of of new technologies. uh, We're seeing competing demands now for us in ways that recognize security and stability brought all of that economic wealth, and with that economic wealth now comes, unfortunately, the potential for uh, developments in terms of military behaviors and procurement in the region if i were to roll up this chart in terms of of reoccurring themes that we see play out over and over it's that we're looking at energy as well as resource strategies in the region that have effectively uh, created a sense of resource nationalism that fuels tension in the region and there's direct implication for u.s policy U.S. presence as well as the movement of U.S. ships in our activities. The second point I would make uh, today is that there is effectively a buyer's market going on. Because of all that economic growth, that has allowed now procurement of weapon systems in ways that we haven't seen before. Imagine Vietnam with six kilo-class submarines. Indonesia is interested in submarines. Singapore has submarines. Malaysia has submarines. And and yet, these countries don't have a long history or a concept of operations of how they would deploy them. It's just that they want them. Well, why would they want them? Well, it's because they feel like their resources are threatened, and now they have the means, because of economic prosperity, to do something about that. Um, So in fact, what we're seeing now is uh, some contending issues here between cooperation as well as competition. So like-minded nations have a shared interest and a reason to cooperate in security. Uh, but also, there's uncertainty about China's appetite, their reach, and their intentions, as well as their uh, what's developed in the region. They distrust over longstanding territorial disputes, uh, and that's driving states to compete militarily. So let me describe to you some of the current-day challenges that we're seeing, and it starts with resources. Next slide. This is the fight for fish. What you're looking at in and are the economic exclusion zones. These are very, very small countries, small governments that rely completely on the fishing industry for their own sustainment, as well as the uh, sustainment of their populations. And when you factor in the tuna, what we're seeing in uh, five degrees north and five degrees south of the equator is effectively strip mining now, illegal fishing, It's occurring right through these economic exclusion zones because it's driving economies and populations. And the populations now are in demand, particularly in China, for about 7, 8, 9% growth, real growth, every year. So think about what that means in terms of demand on resources. It forces now, I think, uh, the fishing industry, in order to be responsive, to drift into the economic exclusion zones of countries in the region. So what does that mean? Next slide. Uh, What that means now when we start to describe some of the competing claims that that are in existence between countries that reside in the region, you have a formula for a real problem. Okay, so you see the the Philippine economic exclusion zone, you see the Vietnamese, Malaysian, uh, Brunei, Indonesia, and now the nine dash line is the representation that you heard in the spring of 2009 of the Chinese corridors. So when the Chinese use the phrase core interest, a, a phrase that's used often to describe their interest in Tibet as well as in Taiwan. Now it's an expanded view into the South China Sea of what they claim as theirs. Now the reality of all of this is you're looking at a region that's rich in resources, uh, whether it's natural gas or it's barrels. Uh, the, the natural gas is, is measured by the trillions and the, and the barrels of oil by the billions. And what this means now is countries are starting to feel the need to develop these resources that although in dispute for many years and although in practical terms set aside so that we could have a stable and secure environment. Now we're starting to feel countries, at least in their rhetoric and in some of the uh, activities that we see at sea uh, in terms of how they police these economic exclusion zones, a real test of wills. So for a country such as Indonesia, they're stuck with the decision of whether or not they take a confrontational approach to the, the intrusions by Chinese fishermen into their economic exclusion zone and run the risk of, a, of a escalation with China or of simply stepping back from that claim that they have for their economic exclusion zone, which is provided to them by the UN Law of the Sea Treaty. What that means then is to effectively, through customary international law, abandon that claim. That's how it works at sea. So borders and boundaries at sea are not like borders and boundaries on land. By custom, by customary international law, those borders and boundaries can shift. If there's no interest on the part of the coastal state to protect what's theirs, uh, then the reality of it is they can, they can see their interests uh, chipped away at by neighbors in the region. Next slide, please. So we wanted to describe for you here how this all fits together as far as your Navy is concerned. And I think it's appropriate to talk about a, a cooperative strategy for the 21st century. And these are the main pillars from left to right. You see, effectively, soft power to hard power, uh, from humanitarian assistance all the way to common projection. And what was, uh, I thought would be helpful today is to describe one of those pillars for you. Because it's relevant to the world that we're operating in today in Japan, and that's to describe a humanitarian assistance piece to it. Excellent. So this is what Japan looked like on the 10th of March, Japan, 2011. That's Fukushima at the top. Of the naval reactors. There's six reactors along with three spent fuel pools. That's Sendai Airport on the left, and this is on the right. Uh, lower right. This is the northeast coast, Honshu, uh, in Japan. Next slide. So this is the moment when Japan realized something really dramatic. This is area at, at the moment 2:45 in the afternoon. In As you see in the background, is the water now starting to cover the water. I shall fast this in, and how 9.1 magnitude earthquake, the tsunami that was larger than anyone had ever predicted, as well as the nuclear reactor disaster. It was, it was apocalyptic in many terms, for many reasons. If you, if you haven't had a chance to see it yet, uh, PBS has put together a remarkable uh, analysis on the events that took place here and the the going in position is that for this earthquake and tsunami, they had more data than ever before because Japan had prepared itself for centuries and had to live with earthquakes and tsunamis. The short version of, of this is that Japan sits on the Eurasian plate. The Pacific plate has been inching underneath the Eurasian plate at about three inches per year for hundreds of years. And what that has done over time is it's created tension on the edge of this plate. And on March the 11th, that tension was released. And the displacement of water from 20,000 feet above that, uh, that, that earthquake uh, now moves in at a very high rate of speed. What, uh, what Japan had prepared for in terms of tsunamis was for tsunamis of that magnitude. But what they had not expected was that when the impact of, of that correction to the pressure that was on the on the Eurasian plate, it dropped the elevation of the beach by a meter, by a good three feet. And so now the displacement has an aggravated effect. Tides now have an amplified effect in ways that just simply were not uh, in any of their analysis or planning If you have seen seen the video from uh, downtown Tokyo, you can tell that the buildings are well constructed and put together. Uh, I had a chance to witness it firsthand, with a 7.1 in Tokyo uh, on the ninth floor of the U.S. Embassy. uh, It was one of the 400 aftershocks of 4.0 or greater that they've suffered since. And, And more so than the tsunami, more so than the lingering effects of radiation, Uh, The the continued aftershocks have real impact emotionally on people. Uh, It's a very unsettling feeling. As you walk to the door, everybody takes their place just sort of watching and waiting. But the buildings move back and forth. Uh, There was no damage in Tokyo, surprisingly, with a (coughs) magnitude earthquake of that size. Um, I can tell you the building that we were in, the windows rattled, everything rattles underneath you. Everything's intact and then we go right back to meetings when it's over. Um, pretty amazing. When we walked into this scene, whether it's um, Sendai Airport, which many claimed were unus- was unusable here in the lower left-hand corner, the total destruction of the coastline, uh, you can see the impact of highways along the coast as well as uh, the stories that you're all too familiar with of the reactor plant. Uh, we needed a different strategy. We needed a different approach. So there were over 50 non-government organizations that were involved in the humanitarian assistance mission. There were um, US government agencies that were that were part of that effort. USAID had the lead for US government agencies. Um, and when you look at the number of industry players who have been part of this effort, both for humanitarian assistance as well as for the reactor, Uh, The Nuclear Regulatory Commission has been involved in direct conversations with the government of Japan when it comes to trying to resolve the issues in the nuclear power plant. I mean, the nuclear power plant construction, as you're all familiar, lost primary, secondary, and tertiary power, and when it lost the ability to cool the reactor, that's when the hydrogen built up and exploded in several of the reactors. And so we had elevated levels of background radiation uh, for both iodine and cesium uh in many parts of the of the area i know this will be an area that we'll probably want to explore further in q a but but i'll just tell you that when it comes to uh, an operation that's named uh, in french tomodachi to to look at the environment that we're in look at how many people left and look how many ships left. and you notice uh we went in there and we put our ships to three at risk. We've been able to understand now exactly how much risk that we've had in terms of exposure. Um, we went in and we're we there with shovels and brooms and dosimeters, okay, measuring radiation while we're helping to clean up. Sendai Airport opened this week to commercial traffic. Pretty remarkable. That 30 days ago you saw that picture, and today commercial traffic. That's amazing. That that was. Air Force special operations teams that were in there uh, cleaning the runway and getting the tower up and running again. Pretty remarkable stuff. You don't just create that overnight. That's what a a standing force, a force that's forward, allows you to do. Uh, A force that we sustain, a force that our government continues to support through new procurement of aircraft, ships, and submarines, of operations and maintenance money. You're talking about 329,000 people or so in the U.S. Navy. Okay, a, a, just a paltry percentage of our population. Uh, 140, 145 billion dollars a year, which in GDP terms uh, is another fraction. And and this is what you're getting in return. You're getting humanitarian assistance all the way to disaster relief and, and then on to power projection. Uh, so from my perspective, I think it is, uh, time well spent by This is coming home for us. We're now at a point with, um, with our discussions on diversity where we have officers <coughs> who are coming home in command of U.S. DDGs. In the upper left hand corner is a Vietnamese born Naval Academy graduate whose family fled in 1975 and went home to Vietnam in <coughs> command of the U.S. Warship. The right-hand side um, same thing from Cambodia as well as in uh, South Korea. Uh, I had a chance to spend some time with Lee Kuan Yew in Singapore, a uh, uh, very revered, respected, uh, historic figure both in the global community as well as uh, a very important senior mentor and mentor minister in St. His comment was that the United States has done something that no other country can do. You cannot, as an American, expect to emigrate to China, land on your feet, raise your name and your family stature to a point where your sons and daughters can lead Chinese warships in command. Only in the United States can you do that. You've, You've unlocked something that other countries can only talk about, but you can do and you've now made yourself more powerful than you realize by doing it. Next slide, please. This is the reason why we think it's important during Navy Week to come home, to talk about what we do, because the impact of what we do, the consequences if we don't do it, are not so obvious, especially as we come home uh, to the Dallas-Fort Worth area. But those of you who are involved in the global economy recognize the importance of security, of stability, of relationships. You recognize the importance of having the ability to shape events, to shape governance structures, to to shape how we talk about issues. You do that by being forward, by being present. So if you ever wonder about our ability to keep pace with challenges in the region, uh, come to Japan. Tokyo is open for business. People are coming back to Tokyo now. It's pretty pretty remarkable the impact that U.S. forces have had in cooperation with Japan in a leadership role in terms of its own humanitarian assistance and consequence management. If you ever wonder about the resilience of the human spirit, come to Sendai, where you'll see the wrath of nature meet the absolute best in pretty remarkable place. Sendai, of course, is an international friendship city for Dallas. And it's been a special place for me as I've walked the streets of Sendai to, uh, to remember that this relationship begins in the mid-90s or so. And it's brought many, many exchanges, culturally, uh, between the two cities of Dallas and Sendai. And we have a very close, close partnership because of it. And now we've gone through battle together. So with that, I'll be interested in what's on your mind tonight and be happy to take It's all about the pilot. <laughs> uh, um, I think the most important aspect about the procurement of, of new platforms, especially aviation, is the ability to grow. Uh, one, of the, one of the challenges that we have in the environment is technology continues to move very, very quickly, very, very rapidly. So the idea of, of buying a platform that becomes sort of blocked in time and doesn't have the ability to grow, meaning doesn't have the weight capacity to grow uh, over time, that can be a significant issue. Because we find in the proliferated world that we're in that the technology that's used in one country oftentimes can end up in the hands of someone completely different. We certainly witnessed this in 2006 with the development of cruise missile technology that took place out of China that was passed to Iran and then to Hezbollah mounted on the back of the truck, and then sank an Egyptian freighter and almost sank an Israeli freighter. Uh, so it was adapted. It didn't originate uh, from Hezbollah's hands, but, but it originated somewhere else. So when we look at developments and procurement of new weapon systems, uh, for aviation in particular, it has to be able to keep pace with developments in the region, some of which are beyond our scope of comprehension. That's okay as long as the airplane can continue to adapt Questions? We do have microphones. So if you wait for a microphone, please. Yes, sir. You we'll just wait for the microphone. It's coming right behind you. I
1: am Tom G. From Dallas. And Pat, if you could take a minute to describe the impact uh, of a balanced budget uh, on the United States Navy relative to its mission, uh, recognizing that today 44 cents out of every dollar comes from borrowed money. Uh, it seems to me you've got a, a real cataclysmic
0: adjustment to make. We do have an adjustment to make. Uh, all of us do. Um, but to the balanced budget, uh, I can tell you that, that we have to live within our means. Otherwise, it's an anti-deficiency act. I mean, there, there's you know, we're held accountable for spending within the limits that we're given. If we go beyond that, then then there's uh, all kinds of reprisals towards us personally if we don't spend within our means. Uh, in terms of the accounts and how it works inside the Department of the Navy, uh, there's, there's a couple of big pieces. One is the procurement of ships, the other is the, is the personnel account, which is also a substantial amount, and then the operations and maintenance account. So those are the three big balls. There's, there's other lesser uh, accounts, but those are the big three that we have to turn to for decisions, and typically what you find is uh, a real reluctance to start digging into and giving up force structure because once we stop building ships to a point where we uh, the shipyard doesn't have the ability to keep up uh, in terms of just manpower and its own cost uh, then we run the risk of losing the shipyard Um, if we uh, if we don't take care of people then we'll be reminded it's an all volunteer force and so if we we ever lose this I mean think about where we were when we were both interested in the Naval Academy in 1973. Um, that was that was a different world that we were operating in. We were just coming off the draft and, and look at where we are today the idea that we can develop people to the point where you know you can you can live and operate and know what you're doing in this kind of world because the investment that's taken place in individual officers and enlisted I mean, there's a lot of thinking that goes on your feet when it comes to operating in a radioactive environment in a contaminated environment. That comes from smart people who figure out, okay, we're not going to be intimidated. We're going back into the fight, and we're going to be smart about this, and we're going to deconstruct the whole radioactive problem to the point where we understand it. Well, that comes with investment in time and having the intellectual capacity to be ready for a new challenge. It shows me agility, I mean that's what you pay for. You paid for a force that knows how to pivot, and knows how to adapt, and knows how to stay relevant because of what's necessary and what's needed. The other account is operations and maintenance. So uh, between the three of them, that, that comprises a substantial amount of our budget. That's what our Chief of Naval Operations is responsible for, living within his means. The problem is the per unit cost now of items like ships, submarines, aircraft, has gotten, uh, is very, very large by comparison to where we started with this many years ago. Uh, yet the ratio between the services, in terms of how uh, money is allocated between the Air Force, the Navy, the Army, that's roughly about the same and has stayed the same over time. Um, and so where we start, where we can get ourselves into trouble is start to chip away either the operations and maintenance account, meaning we cut corners with deep maintenance that's required for ships, we cut back on the amount that we're operating or we stop hiring and and we just allow the force to hollow out from within. Interesting comment from academics in Malaysia, if there is a change in U.S. Navy force posture in Asia Pacific, and I didn't prompt this this comment, uh, it's a game changer. They're watching developments, they're watching the rise of China, they're watching, um, and I think the best way to put it on balance is just probing it's a test to see just whether or not you're really committed to what you say you're committed to Pepper country uh, for the for your natural resources for the borders <coughs> and the boundaries because china's got a voracious appetite with very little interest in terms of what they're doing to the resources other than trying to ensure the stability of their own regime by growth and so it's a it's a game that we have to watch uh, to take a long view uh, because I think with the expanded economy and in China, it means the development of a middle class. Where there's a sense of ownership, and a sense of pride, and a sense of growth. And, and that's a different, very different China than what it started. So the long winded answer is, we have to live within our means, those are the major accounts. But in each one, uh, you run the risk of stepping back at a time when uh, all the indicators are this is the last time to step back from your commitment for your result thank you we
1: have time for two more questions
0: yes ma'am wait for a mic right here i wish we had time for more questions uh hello my name is ashley kim i'm a student of garland high school and i have kind of a two-part question the first one is you were talking about how the plates were sliding under each other which caused the catastrophe in Japan the earthquake and everything. Is How is Japan's future going to look based off the information off the slides? And the second part of this question is what are we as a global society going to learn from the recent catastrophe in Japan? Yeah, it's the recent catastrophe in Chile, in Christchurch, New Zealand, as well as in Japan. And, and what we're seeing over time is that the first week of aftershocks The number was close to 260 to 270 or so. Uh, Now we're down to about 60 to 70 aftershocks per week, and we're gonna see a gradual dampening out, but it's gonna take time. Uh, What we learned from this, I think, is we ought to be expecting. I mean, the, the five humanitarian assistance and disaster relief operations that we've been in to include earthquakes have also included typhoons. And what we're finding now is the weather patterns have changed not so much in terms of of the time of year or the place they go, it's the intensity in which they, the downpour occurs, for example. We ought to be anticipating now what do we do with this deluge of water? How are we going to manage that? Because if we, if we don't do anything about it, then we continue to have real issues with flooding and, and no place to put it, and lots of runoff and, and loss of lots. I think we ought to be anticipating this is going to be the world we're in for some time. Last question on this side. Yes, sir. I got a lot of voice. I think that now, we're, we're podcasting thanks to our friends at Haynes and Boos. My name is Steve Blanca. I'm um, glad to see you back. i happy. And I want to say thank you for all your efforts and thanks for fronting me on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> I'm out there for anybody. you <laughs> we, we were talking about the resiliency of the people. And I was wondering if you could have any information regarding... The stories about thousands of people, to Japanese people, coming forward to basically sacrifice themselves to go into the nuclear areas yeah. and try to stop the problem. Yeah, uh, there's a there's a group called the, the Fukushima 50, which are the guys that that continue to run into the the area and put water on the reactors. This really started with uh, explosions in, in reactor number one, and three, and two. Uh, and, and the uh, spent fuel in number four. And and what the media saw was everybody running out of the... And it concerned everyone because it looked like this thing was just really going to go out of control. Uh, but what they didn't see was the, the self-defense force, the Japanese military, received the responsibility to, to contain the plant. And they had volunteers going in, uh, knowing full well that the, that the dose of radiation that they were exposed to would be lethal at some point. Uh, there, there's lots of stories like that, not only the, the Fukushima 50, but also uh, people that are doing extraordinary things in order to in order to just find loved ones and missing. Remember this took place at 245 in the afternoon, kids were in school. So when you saw a wall of water like that come through, there's now a lot of orphans that are separated. And what we did is... Uh, uh, recognize that the schools were unusable and part of our operation was to clean schools because that's what was needed. Uh, you'll find you'll find volunteers in some of the strangest places out there doing the best they can. We give the, the Japanese the lead when it comes to these sorts of operations because of the absolute respect and reverence that goes with with the department and the way they would like to conduct services on the spot once they find. Uh, there's been no rotation for those soldiers. Those soldiers live in that area, and so they're finding their own family members. They're finding uh, neighbors, and, and the resilience of the human spirit at Sendai is absolutely remarkable. Because you're looking at something that just doesn't make any sense. You see boats on top of buildings. You see cars in the water, and it looks like anything that was man-made, heavy, was flicked like a toothpick uh, and deposited some uh, in some unlikely. And so here you have the wrath of nature meeting you know, the, the best in humanity. Uh, it's a remarkable mix that Hollywood could never describe, no book can ever capture. Thank you.
1: And if you join us on stage for a Thank you. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas Fort Worth, visit them on the web at
0: www.dfwworld.org.